welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Dr. Tor Wager. He is the Diana L. Taylor Distinguished Professor of Neuroscience at Dartmouth College, and he also directs the Dartmouth Cognitive and Effective Neuroscience Laboratory, the Dartmouth Brain Imaging Center, and the Dartmouth Center for Cognitive Neuroscience. His research centers on the neurophysiology of pain, emotion, stress, and empathy. Welcome. Thank you, Tom. Tor, welcome back. Um, the, the audience we were on last week with the podcast, and you know, I'm going to informally introduce Tor and maybe just state his position a bit more formally, but um, Tor has been part of a lot of our lives last 15 years with his work in the neuroscience world and chronic pain. Um, he's a psychologist. He neuroscientist. He, um, I just found out he's a musician, which I think adds a lot to why he's so creative. And Tori's capacity to take in disparate pieces of information and start creating into a whole picture is wonderful. So the first podcast, we talked about functional MRI scans, and he is one of the world's leader in how to read them, interpret them, and bring them into clinical medicine. What we're trying to do as a group is actually try to connect his knowledge with our clinical care we're really excited about his work, and I feel incredibly honored to have him on our podcast today. So, Tor, welcome back. And um, we left off. So, just really quickly, what's your official position? You're at Dartmouth now. What's your official position right now? I'm the Dana L. Taylor Distinguished Professor of Psychological and Brain Sciences. Okay. So, you run your, you basically run your own neuroscience department. Uh, a, I run a lab, the Cognitive yeah. and Affective Neuroscience Lab, and I direct the Dartmouth Brain Imaging Center and the Dartmouth Center for Cognitive Neuroscience. And just for fun, how many projects do you have going right now? <laughs> 60. Too many. I can't tell how you. Many? 60, something oh like that. And I know I'm various uh, stages. <laughs> and again, it's fun for us because as a clinician, we tend to think in terms of structural issues learning that probably 90% of symptoms, physical symptoms are created by the body's physiology. And Tor has been instrumental in looking at brain imaging, which is called the autonomic nervous system, which really controls your inflammation and different hormones and stuff like that, and your body's response to the environment. And so Tor is one of the leading people in the world as far as putting all this together for us. And what I want to talk about in this podcast is that just some of the basic principles of healing because chronic pain is considered to be an unsolvable problem. You get to manage it and do what you can do. And we're now seeing hundreds of patients, multiple different clinicians saying, this is a solvable problem. Once you understand the problem and treat it with the correct paradigm, it's not that hard to solve, actually. So on a given individual can be challenging, but the basic principles are not that hard to do. So what I want to talk about today is that when your brain is feels threatened, it creates a response to your body that's fight or flight which is a, what's called a physiological response. If you look at your car, that's the structure when you turn the car on, that's the physiology of the body. I mean, it's the physiology of the car. The human body is what my friends, Bruce Lipton pointed out, what the difference between a cadaver and a human being is energy and physiology. We're alive. And so the nervous system is that referee, so to speak, between our circumstances and our body. It's sort of that, it's not a command center, it's more of a control tower. Is that a fair statement, Tor? Control tower for the body. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. It, you know, it's sensory input in, your brain sending signals out back and forth. So the central system 
the coordinates information that allows you to stay alive. And we tend to think in terms of bringing up a command center of the electrical circuits, where really it's just the middle part of the entire process. So what I'd like to talk to her about specifically is briefly touch on the physiology of threat and then how we can harness the healing power of what we call placebo. In the medical profession, placebos historically were still being trained this way, but I was really trained this way as a medical student that if you find nothing on a scan and a person seems to be acting a little bit painful, they're quote faking it or there's nothing wrong. So we, we used to use placebo in a very negative way, proving this person was just faking it. That's completely changed, but the connotation of that word have not changed. So I want to really dig into this word placebo because to we, he, he and I both feel, many other people feel that placebo is the most powerful healing concept that exists in this human experience. Then there's a study that's been a part of about a boulder um, with multi-pronged study, really wonderful study where they connected the treatment of chronic pain with a certain technique in the absolute MRI scans and very well published study right now being published all over the, all over the world. It is called PRT therapy, Tor, what's that call it stand for? Right, pain reprocessing therapy. Hmm. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. Um, I guess I should let you talk, right? To just <laughs> <laughs> but you're so eloquent, David. Okay, yeah, right. So anyway, so Tor, let's talk about the, um, the concept of placebo. What does that word mean to you, this placebo response? So the, the placebo response in clinical trials uh, is defined as the overall benefit that you get from uh, in a placebo arm of the study. So taking a sham drug. Uh, and the thing is that that's- so what, what, what kind of drug? You said sham drugs? Yes, any, any, dr any drug or device that's inert. So there's no active ingredients. Like sugar pills or fake surgery, stuff like that. Exactly. And people, okay. people come into studies and they get better. And part of that is uh, a, a suite of statistical artifacts and people would get better anyway and they enroll when the, their symptoms are at their worst and then they, they regress to the mean and so forth. But once you compare taking a placebo to a no treatment control um, or a natural history, but they don't have the same expectations and beliefs that go along with taking a treatment, then that difference is the placebo effect. And that is caused by, by the treatment context. It can't be caused by the treatment per se, right? A sham pill doesn't heal you per se. A sham pill triggers a set of processes that happen in your brain uh, and in your body that change your brain's chemistry, that changes activity. Uh, and those can have benefits and they can have harms as well. So the harm part is, um, they call that nocebo effect, right? Exactly. So I think what I really want the audience to understand is that, as you mentioned in the first podcast, that your belief about something changes your body's physiology or body's chemistry. In other words, your expectation actually changes this. In other words, your expectation of healing of that expectation is not like your, it's not, it's physiological more than psychological. Is that a fair statement? Expectation, and according to this new view that we're getting from the brain, expectation is uh, the fundamental driver of how your brain responds uh, to, to events, to situations, to what it learns. Can you um, explain that for a second? Uh, yeah, there's, there's lots of different ways of explaining it, really. But one way is, is one of the, the oldest known uh, tricks in the book 
is conditioning, reward conditioning. So Pavlov's dogs, right? Plays the, the bell, <laughs> you know, and, and then they get the food, right? And the dog starts to salivate to the bell. So over a hundred years old. Well, the theories about how an animal or a human learns that has to do with the comparison to expectations. So the expectations live in your brain as a neurobiological reality. And they're compared with what comes in when you get that food. And if that food is better than expected, you learn, you update. Uh, and so expectations are very real neurobiologically. They drive learning in, in, in all species, including humans. And with, with pain, they drive what we learn from pain as well. So it's not just the pain that teaches us to avoid something or teaches our bodies to respond with a, a, a threat response. It is the comparison between the pain and the expectation. Right. Um, I'm going to take a little segue here on the placebo effect because there's a psychologist by the name of Harry Harlow in the 60s and 70s who found out that the way you induce depression in monkeys, he did all sorts of really tough experiments on these monkeys, but he found out the way to induce depression is that they built a cage that was narrow at the bottom, wide at the top, and there's a screen on the top the monkeys would scramble up the side of the cage and slide right back down. They did that for about two or three hours and they would have expectations of getting out, disappointed, expectations disappointed. Within two to four hours, they quit climbing the cage and they got severely depressed. And the lab people got so upset, they call it the pit of despair. They were really upset about this. And when they pulled the monkeys out of the cage, they didn't break the depression. It took, it took them months to pull them out of that depression. Mm. So repeatedly dashing hope induces depression. Then Dancer, I do know out of um, and maybe your work too, is that one thing that is actually anti-inflammatory and healing is um, hope. You know, hope actually lowers, hope and optimism actually lowers inflammatory markers. So in chronic pain, of course, we promise all these treatments that actually been documented not to work, i.e. spine surgery. And we go through big interventions, big hopes, which actually has a bit of a placebo effect for a short term. I've always said everybody gets better from spine surgery for at least three months, and then bam, they go back to where they were. So any comments on that sequence, Tor? Maybe that's some of your work about the uh, yeah. inflammation. Well, what, you know, what that reminds me of is um, this work on perceived control. So a big part of taking a placebo, there's many ingredients, in a, in a psychological ingredients in a placebo and brain ingredients, but a big one is, is perceived control. Um, and um, in my colleague Steve Mayer's work, he gives rats the, uh, the uh, a, a really bad shock, right? And he gives them a shock in the situation where they're, they're, it's inescapable and there's nothing they can do. There's no, just no contingencies between what they might do and then the relief. Um, and then another group is identical shocks, but they have control. And what he finds is that that control is a powerful buffering that reduces fear learning, threat learning. It reduces all kinds of um, threat and anxiety like behaviors in, in the rats. And it does so by affecting the pathways from the medial prefrontal cortex to the brainstem, to the dorsal raphe nucleus in particular, which is a serotonin center in the brainstem. Uh, and so the rats that have control, I get a rainy just for a second. So you yeah. talk frontal, premedial, that's, a, that's the lower part of the front part of the brain, correct? 
In other words, that's just a brain region you described. Yeah, the medial prefrontal cortex is, is like the third eye right behind your, your forehead. Okay. And, and next to the brainstem, you said? Yep, and it connects to the brainstem, which is uh, the centers that are important for um, producing serotonin in the brain, which is related to lots of things, aggression and depression and, and, uh, and other things as well. Um, and so, so it's that circuit from one of the evolutionarily newest parts of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, to the brainstem, one of the oldest parts, that is active when the rats have control. And when that pathway is activated, then uh, the rats display all these, these benefits. But it turns out when we give people placebo treatments for pain, uh, as well as for other conditions like uh, Parkinson's um, disease as well, then they activate the medial prefrontal cortex. So that's one clue, right? That, that just the act of taking a treatment can change the mindset of a person in ways that changes what they learn about, what an experience means to them. You know, and yeah. You know, the difference I between mean, every, um, I mean, every medicine, including cardiac drugs, et cetera, every one of them has a significant placebo effect. And so understand that. So we know there's there's actually chemical value of these drugs, but every one of them has a huge placebo effect, which is considered around 25 to 30 percent, right? Is that a is that a fair statement? Um, it, yeah, it, it is. That number came from Beecher, but we can make that number 80% too, um, okay. or less, uh, you know, depending on the, the circumstances. But as a ballpark number, that seems fine. Yeah. yeah I'll make a blank, blankman stay because of, because of time. So I really want to spend time in this paper published out of Boulder, Colorado, where Taurus, one of the principal investigators, on us called pain reprocessing therapy. And I like to talk about solutions for a second and just use this study as illustrating the ways you actually can heal by connecting to the body's own capacity to heal. And so, um, Tor, could you tell about this study, how it was conceived and what your role was and what the findings were? Yeah, I, I'll tell you. Um, and I, I think, you know, before I tell you this, I think the link from placebo to this study, which is a, a psychological and behavioral treatment, is that the, your beliefs really are the key thing. And it's your beliefs about what's causing your pain and what that means for your future. Uh, and so I think people with chronic pain often get trapped in a cycle where um, if pain is, um, is a sign of tissue injury, which people are told that it is, and that's why they need surgery, uh, then it's natural that that's gonna induce fear and threat. So that's a physiological response. And when you have that threat response, then the brain becomes vigilant. And when the brain becomes vigilant, pain is amplified. But it starts from it starts from that belief, and it doesn't have to be a conscious belief, you know. But but it's it's a it's a mindset that's held in the brain itself, and that determines whether you amplify pain or whether you normalize it and and ramp it down over time. Uh, and and so both placebo effects and, in my view, all kinds of of psychological treatments start with shifting that worldview, shifting those core beliefs about what pain in this case means. Right, interesting, that's really, I love it. So, so the study is uh, about pain reprocessing therapy. And um, you know, we, we've been studying biomarkers for uh, acute pain and also for chronic pain. So we're doing brain imaging studies, uh, you know, that, trying to develop these biomarkers and find out where they live in the brain. 
um, and, and studying placebo effects and other kinds of interventions like mindfulness and acceptance and appraisal uh, uh, and, and others. And so um, this study happened when um, Howard Schubiner and Alan Gordon came to us and they said, we have a case study and we want you to help us write it up. We have this amazing cure and we've been doing this treatment uh, for, for people for 20 years or in Howard's case and, you know, and it really works. So, you know, can you study it? And long story short, it just happened at the time that we were starting a study of chronic back pain and placebo. And my student, Yoni Ashar, had um, kind of just settled on this as his, his dissertation topics. So we'd committed to the study. We said, yeah, we can add this arm. We'll study the treatment as well. So that's how it got started. And um, once we realized it got started, and there was a sort of a wonderful process of, of getting seed funding from a, a, a foundation to study placebo effects and, and, and some crowdfunding money to study this, um, the PRT therapy. Um, and then another radiology society fellowship, and then our grant money that I had that supplemented a lot of the studies. So we started, we started with a very small idea of one person, and we expanded it to a study of 20 people with this therapy, which is not much. And we ended up with uh, 200 people overall in the, in the oh, study. 200, so wow. 100, yeah, 150 people that were randomized to one of three arms. And one of them is usual care, which means they're all taking... NSAIDs and usual, usual kinds of things for back pain, um, typically. Only a few taking opioids. Uh, or um, a placebo treatment, and this was an open-label placebo treatment where people went to a real pain clinic with a, uh, a real pain specialist, you know, MD pain specialist, Karen Knight, and um, they got an injection into the back um, because epidural steroid injections are, uh, are a widely used technique but in meta-analyses and in clinical trials, they don't beat placebo effects. So we tried to mimic that <laughs> epidural steroid injection effect. And then the third arm was uh, PRT, pain reprocessing therapy. And in this, uh, Alan Gordon flew back and forth from LA to Boulder for, um, I don't know, I think it was like 170 times or something, <laughs> many times. He basically lived, he got a hotel apartment, whatever he had. Wow. And he, you know, he was, he was there doing, doing these treatments twice a week for four weeks. Um, long story short, so, so, um, so this was really one of the largest uh, brain imaging studies of chronic pain done to date. Um, and, and the first chronic back pain study that we did in my lab. Uh, and the, the results were really remarkable. You know, there, there's a, um, there, in the usual care group, people, um, they get a little bit better, but not much. Um, in the placebo group, there is a significant benefit. So just visiting the doctor and getting that sham injection did produce a significant benefit. And that benefit was about as large as typical cognitive behavioral therapy or NSAIDs uh, or other pharmacological treatments for chronic back pain. Um, so it worked a little bit, but that effect didn't last. Um, and the effect of the pain reprocessing therapy was really remarkable. Um, two thirds of the people were pain-free or nearly pain-free after a month, even though they'd been in pain an average of, of 10 years uh, before the study, and they stayed better for a year, <laughs> at least. That's as long as we followed them up. Wow. So it was really, really remarkable. Um, could you um, could you describe from your perspective the because um, because 
you know, I don't know the actual process in detail, even though we all are sort of familiar with the general principles of, I mean, there's a lot of clinicians that actually duplicate that type of therapy with their own version of it. Can you encapsulate um, the pain reprocessing therapy from your perspective, what it entails and why you think it works? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. I've been, I've been thinking for the last couple of years now about, you know, what are the active ingredients? And we've been trying to figure it out um, as we go along. Um, and as I see it now, there are several ingredients. And, and I have to say that many of these, I've, I've given talks on this and people will come up to me and say, that's what I do. I do cognitive behavioral therapy for pain and that's what I do, right? Or I'm, I'm a physiotherapist and we do this, right? So there's a lot of different groups and different people who treat pain who have discovered similar principles. Um, some of the, the common principles are, you know, believing in, in the patient's pain, allying with them and um, getting them to realize that pain doesn't mean injury. And that, that's a common principle and that's a really important one. And then a number of groups, more and more groups are now going beyond that to do pain exposure. So they say, because, you, uh, because movement is actually safe, then you, you can move in the ways that hurt. If your back hurts when you bend over, that's okay, bend over. Let's do it together, <laughs> right? Um, and so that, so the way I see it, you know, the the idea, the core belief that pain, you thought before that pain was damaging your your back, mm -hmm. and now you realize, at least you have some hope, or maybe the idea that pain isn't necessarily causing damage, and you can move, and then you put it into practice, and you do those things that were painful, and all of a sudden you start to unwind that pain. Um, now, what's different about PRT from other treatments? And I think we have a lot to learn about that. I think every type of psychotherapy or treatment in the hands of every person is a, is a different mix. Every person is unique. Every healer is unique, right? Um, so we have a lot to learn. But some of the things that are, I think, relatively unique are as follows. Um, in, in PRT, there's really this emphasis on taking a stand and saying, we've looked at your back, we've looked at the bulging discs, and guess what? That's not causing your pain. So there's a, a positive affirmation that there's something else, and that something else is sensitization in brain circuits. So it gives people a different narrative. And if you compare that to many forms of psychotherapy, they will say something like standard CBT or, or ACT will say, uh, we don't know what's causing your pain, we're not even gonna to hope to really cure it. We're gonna help you learn to live with it and accept it. Right. Acceptance is good. But think about the sort of really dramatic difference, you know, between that and saying your pain can be cured and it is not, you know, caused by continuing pathology in your back. And it's not a sign of, of damage to your back. So it's okay. We know it's caused by some kind of sensitization in, in your brain. So there's, there's a change in the narrative. And then there's a lot of therapeutic alliance and there's a lot of support you know, to go along with that, to then engage in movements. And sometimes you know, people, people won't be able to do uh, feared and painful movements right away. Um, and so what Alan would do with them is have them imagine. So um, they return attention to their body. He calls it somatic tracking. Uh, but what you're really doing is you're paying attention to your body, you're paying attention to pain signals in your body, and 
negative emotions in your body. You can localize fear in your body. You can localize anger in your body if you try and think about it. You can draw and feel where it is, what it feels like. So he does that. And he, and he tries to shift people from um, thinking about th this as, oh my gosh, it's pain. It's scary. I'm just going to avoid it and press on. And that's probably exactly the wrong thing to do. Right. Because if you think about training your brain, what you're doing is you're, you're saying, that's really scary. I'm going to press on and avoid that. I'm going to shift my attention away. But you can't because it's pain. <laughs> right. And so it just creates a cycle of, of failure, essentially. And then you become hypervigilant. Instead, you say, I'm going to attend to the pain. That's okay because it's just pain. It's a, it's a false alarm. Um, and so you start retraining your brain to stop avoiding, to, to approach. And he even tries to get people to treat it with curiosity because it's safe. You can go, huh, isn't that pain funny? Isn't that interesting? You know, bring it on. <laughs> That's one of, one of the patients in the study said this afterwards. She's like, now, yeah, the sensations come, but I realized that it's okay to feel those sensations, you know, and that they'll go away. <laughs> yeah. For those of those of you that are familiar with Vipassana retreats, have you heard of these, Tor? Yes, I have. <laughs> uh, have you been in one? I, I have not, actually. I, I haven't dared. <laughs> so I'm not going to do I've decided unequivocally I'm not going to do this, but there are 10-day silent retreats. I've had several friends go two or three times, including my stepdaughter, and everyone has the same experience where they it's painful to sit in one spot, and they're told to actually watch the pain, be curious about it, and they're just flabbergasted the pain actually disappears. It's fascinating. Anyway, um, we have to run, and I could talk about this, as you know, for hours. For both of us, we're just barely, barely um, um, touching the surface here. But um, the messaging here is that pain is a perception. Your body has said danger versus safety. And I just want to finish with a concept, and I think you've said this in your writings, where the essence of chronic illness and pain is ongoing exposure to perceived or real threat. Because it changes your body's chemistry, it changes your brain activity, and the solution lies in teaching people how to create safety, whether it's tools or strategies or actual safety. So basically, is threat versus safety changes your basic physiology. And what basically pain reprocessing therapy does, it allows you to feel safe when things really are safe. And we perceive things as if you perceive things as unsafe when they really, if you perceive it, if you perceive it as unsafe, your body's going to react like that. Correct. So it comes down to really sort of safety versus threat. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think there's a that's a decision that the brain is making all the time. And, and if you can realize that, in fact, it is safe, physically safe, then you can start to say, oh, it's just pain. And that's a process. Right. So, Tor, thank you again very, very much. I'm excited about things that we've talked about today. I learned, learned some more things myself. And... Um, can you give the audience, you have a, um, a website that allows us to access your research and ideas and articles and stuff, which I'm very excited about knowing about, is called canlab.com. It stands for what now? Dot science. <laughs> I can't oh, I'm sorry. Dot science. <laughs> right. okay, we better change that on the first podcast, Tom. So I'm sorry. It's called canlab.science. Mm -hmm. Wow. Exactly. Okay. And, and what's, what's, what's on that site, Tor? That's our lab website. And so what you have is um, papers about the science underlying brain-body communications, placebo effects, um, our work on chronic pain. You can see, um, yeah, uh, some, some videos of, uh, of patients who have undergone PRT. 
now and uh, and other information really about about the science underlying brain body communication. Great. All right, Tor, thank you again, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you, David. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Tor Wager, for being on the program today and for sharing the research his lab is doing on the neurophysiology of pain, particularly pain reprocessing therapy. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.